Trustworthiness is an institutional feature. It's something that can be created and supported so you look not to the person necessarily, but to the arrangements in which the person is embedded to see if you can therefore, as it were, trust them. Welcome to the Social Science Republic Good Podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yagasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech, interested in the question of how to build a better world. Very good. Well, welcome back, everyone. You know, we've talked about a number of things on this podcast up to now in this domain of trust, including interpersonal trusts, institutional trusts, um, all these different kinds of trusts. How are you feeling at this point, Yugasha? What are you thinking about all this? Well, I'm really fascinated about the depth of research that has gone into trust. And there are so many layers to the way we understand trust. And um, with the help of our our guests, we slowly, I feel like we're peeling away at the multiple layers um, of trust. Um, and I cannot wait to find out more. How about you, Brad? This is your research interest. And how, how have these conversations been for you? I've really enjoyed them. You know, it's always great to put uh, a face and get a chance to talk to some of your icons in the field. And so it's been really insightful to do that. I do think, you know, we're still uh, uh, as well as learning so much throughout this, we also are seeing that there are still so many gaps in the literature that there are so many things that we don't know. And mm-hmm. as with all scholarship, I think, right, the more we more we research, the more we realize that there's such a depth to things that we need to continue to figure out. And so I guess, you know, like one of the things we haven't really touched on now is this, uh, this potential difference between interpersonal and institutional trust. You know, we've kind of heard it hinted at that maybe these are, should be understood differently. And, and, and then to add another level to it is this kind of idea of should we be thinking about the, the trust in government the same way? But I, I, what are your kind of initial thoughts, you guys? Do you think that we these are the same kind of trust? Or are they distinct? Or, uh, you know, uh, when you're thinking about your trust in your family versus your trust in your government, are those different things in your mind? Absolutely. They're very different. Um, and interpersonal trust or the trust that we have with our family members, let's say, it's so different just because um, I think it is bred through in-person communication. We are dealing with them on a daily basis. We're talking to them. We're communicating about our expectations of them. Um, Something I've learned from our conversation about trust and how it's defined is the expectations and how we understand that. With the government, it's a lot more different because it's... um, we don't interact with them uh, on a daily basis just the way we do in a personal setting. It's uh, faceless um, to say in a way. And it's more about how they are able to get people to trust them through their actions more than their words. Um, that That is my interpretation of uh, the, the distinction between the two. Hmm, that's really interesting. It raises this question we've kind of touched on throughout this podcast of this difference between a rational or a cognitive understanding of trust and a more effective emotional being of trust. And when government doesn't have those 
uh, faces to it, it, it's arguable that it's harder to generate those emotions mm-hmm. towards it, so it becomes a more rational thing. But then at the same time, we've certainly seen that our our, our reactions to politics and government are, are not necessarily all the way rational. But mm-hmm. So I'm intrigued to dig into this further with you today. The, the big kind of question we've got on the mind is how is political trust distinct and, and why is it so important? Uh, and so to help us think about this today, we've got uh, Dr. Margaret Levy, uh, professor of political science at Stanford and senior fellow in the Center of Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law there. She's won a numerous awards in her illustrious career and has served in a number of prestigious postings, including as president of the American Political Science Association. She's the author or co-author of an, any number of articles and a number of books as well, including notably Consent, Dissent, and Patriotism, and Cooperation Without Trust, as well as most recently, A Moral Political Economy, published with Cambridge Press. Uh, she explores how institutions, organizations, and governments provoke member willingness to act beyond material interest, and including, and part of this is a, a big part of this, is this idea of political trust. Uh, and trustworthiness. But what do you think, Yagasha? Shall we shall we dig in? Uh, well, Dr. Levy, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Social All Science right. Republic Good podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, you've written broadly about political trust and trustworthiness in this kind of domain. Can you share a little bit about how you first became interested in this space and why you continue to think it's so relevant to the work that you do? Well, I became interested initially because I was working on a project many, many years ago, uh, thinking about revenue extraction over history and the conditions under uh, which governments could make it more or less productive, efficient, uh, legitimate. And I did that. It was a book called Of Rule and Revenue, which covered uh, ancient Greece to contemporary Uh, democratic capitalist societies. And what I discovered in that was that the key was not what I had initially thought. I was then thinking a lot about economic transaction costs and where it would be cheaper, more efficient in uh, cost-benefit terms, simply economic and material cost-benefit terms. And I discovered in the course of writing that book that what was really critical was the extent to which citizens were willing to comply or consent with extractive government demands. And that in turn rested on the extent to which they found government to be trustworthy, the extent to which, as we say colloquially, they trust government, a term I try to avoid actually, I'll explain that later. That led me to then uh, try to find cases where I could actually look at citizen behavior, not just at government behavior towards citizens, to find out how much that actually was the case. And that led to several uh, pieces of research, including a book on military service called Consent, Dissent, and Patriotism. Um, And ultimately, I became part of a three-person team that the Russell Sage Foundation supported, a sociologist, a political theorist, philosopher, and me, Karen Cook, Russell Harden, and me, uh, thinking about trust, trustworthiness, and related concepts. And that was a 10-year project, and we did a big book series with lots of, of, of others' books in our series, as well as books that we individually edited, and a book that we collaboratively wrote 
called Cooperation Without Trust? Question mark. So that's the history of that. I've continued to be interested in it because the issue of both trustworthy government and what makes a government trustworthy and people believe that and act on that continues obviously to be a very important issue in contemporary politics. Um, and in part because the issue of legitimacy of government and how people perceive government to be legitimate also has become a big subject of conversation. And the concept of, of trustworthy government is clearly implicated in a discussion of the legitimacy of government. Can you walk us through how you would understand the two concepts of uh, trustworthiness and trust and how the two are uh, related to each other? Well, trust is a cognitive concept or an individual concept. I trust you to do something. So it's always three parts. Um, there are two actors, one who is being asked to be trusted and one who is being asked to trust. And there's always around something. So I always give the example of I have a lot of um, faith, trust. I find my husband incredibly trustworthy, but I wouldn't trust him to fix the car. Um, I'd, I'd trust him to help me out if I were in trouble, but not to actually do certain kinds of tasks. So there's always limits. Um, to the concept of trust in terms of what it is that people are being trusted to do. The other issue with trust is I'm an opponent of the idea that trust is a virtue. Um, trust can be the, sources, the source of being conned. Uh, so you can mistakenly trust, you can give your, your you can believe in somebody um, inappropriately. So it, there's always a set of judgments that have to be made, which could be right, wrong, informed, misinformed, based on emotions or other kinds of factors that affect it. Trustworthiness is an institutional feature. Um, it's something that can be created and supported. So you look not to the person necessarily, but to the arrangements in which the person is embedded to see if you can therefore, as it were, trust them. Um, so you're really putting your confidence in the organizational, legal, institutional features. So when you find a government trustworthy, you may not find a particular tax collector or um, bureaucrat to your liking, or you may not as a person think that they are necessarily trustworthy, but you might have confidence that government has uh, the capacity and the rules in place to keep that person in check, to do what they have promised to do. So it's more confidence in the organizational arrangements than in the actual individual. Obviously, it's best if you feel good about both. Um, but the important thing here in trustworthiness is building up the arrangements. I mean, it's a Madisonian concept in many ways that government may be made up of many knaves, and so you have to have institutional arrangements that protect you from the knaves, even though most of the people in the organization are good. Hmm. But to build on that, I, I'm intrigued, you know, just to hear you say that this institutional level of trustworthiness lending an air to the to the people below it. Is there a sense that 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 trustworthiness can also be developed through the individuals that are involved in it as well. So it's not, 
trust coming from the individuals that you may trust the tax collector and so it makes you trust the institution more does it flow in both directions or do you find that it mostly flows from the institution to the individuals involved well emotionally it obviously flows in both directions so i mean it's one of the reasons that we want social workers and teachers and others who are as it were the street level bureaucrats the term that michael lipsky created um to act in a in a way that makes you feel comfortable with them or comfortable enough with them though sometimes they have to police they have to engage in disciplinary actions as do teachers and others um but sure uh, that will affect if if a person who is representing the institution proves themselves untrustworthy it's also an indicator that the institution isn't working very well right that its trustworthiness is in question if an individual can get away with problematic behaviors whether they're the way they're treating you verbally um or physically or um you know that they're just not nice um but it's it's much more important that they actually deliver on what they're supposed to deliver on it on and do it in the appropriate way and as i said appropriate can differ i mean there are i'm i'm opposed to much of the problematic behavior as many of us are of police officers but i also understand that there are conditions where you would want them to interfere and even to pull their guns there are certainly conditions where you would want teachers to engage in some kind of disciplinary action against students who are disrupting the class and you wouldn't want that you would want that to affect the institution favorably not negatively because you'd see it as appropriate behavior within the context so yes it can go both ways but i think the more important way is it's really telling us something about the institution and as the institution doing what it should be doing a little earlier you were talking about um the connection of a trustworthiness of a government uh, to its um, legitimacy can you share a little bit about how you see that connection uh, operating well i think legitimacy comes from a somewhat different source than trust it's really uh when we think about a legitimate government we have a belief that it is uh there appropriately and by the circumstances that we agreed that so thinking about elections which is of course where legitimacy has come up recently um there are those in the united states who believe that the current president is biden is legitimately elected that the processes were actually followed um and that obviously is also saying something about the trustworthiness of the arrangements but the bottom line is um whether or not biden is a trustworthy president was he legitimately elected um and i would argue strongly that he was but as we know there are people in the united states who believe differently than that um if you think about uh monarchs of the past uh often legitimacy rested on things like was there theocratic justification for them being in power and if there wasn't or if they violated uh certain kinds of succession rules uh they might be considered illegitimate it wasn't by election so legitimacy often comes from you know where did that that person or actor come from how did they get the power that they have and the sources of that power 
rather than so much how they are acting with that power. Hmm. Though clearly a big violation of the rules by an a legitimately appointed, elected, successive uh, person can also lead to illegitimacy. Well, and you, you've situated a, uh, a good amount of your work in this in this space of trustworthiness as an essential part of democratic governance and, and democratic society, which I think uh, we can all understand. But can you share a little bit about how directly that that trustworthiness impacts democratic societies as opposed to undemocratic societies and, and why it's so important in this in this framework we operate within? Well, I actually think it's important in both. Um, of rule and revenue was looking, as I said, at all kinds of societies. They weren't, it was pre-democratic when I started. Uh, I mean, the cases were pre-democratic, many of them. So it affects the capacity of governments to extract resources, whether they're democratic or not. Um, of course, if a government is non-democratic, it's not held accountable uh, if it violates that. What makes it really important in democracies is not only uh, does it affect compliance, but that compliance or consent, because sometimes it's more active than compliance, it's not just going along, that compliance or consent um, will then have a loop effect or you know, a, a feedback effect um, that leads to not voting for certain people or certain uh, governments because they violated uh, the expectations of trustworthiness. So, or it leads to a protest of various kinds, which make it appear that the government is incapable of managing its society. So the feedback effect is very different in a democracy uh, than it is in an autocracy. You've also stated your preference for behavioral measures of trust and trustworthiness, such as compliance and engagement and resistance. Can you elaborate on why do you think those are helpful measures and why they may be central in the context of democratic governments? Well, I'm very suspicious of many of the surveys. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, we started off with trust questions in surveys and sometime in the 50s, more or less, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And they were very vague questions um, that people could read in a variety of ways. And they were sustained in surveys because they'd been in surveys for so long. So you have these surveys that tell you that there's been a decline in trust in government. And I don't know how to assess that because I don't really know what the surveys are measuring. That's one point. Two, think about when those surveys started. They started in a period of, uh, at least in the United States, in a period when um, people were optimistic, the country was doing pretty well, at least many people in the country were doing pretty well. We learned by 1960 that that was not so much the case for very poor people and for people, and of course for people of color. Um, but there was certainly a sense of optimism and, um, of, of well-being, so it and and that the U.S. was the most powerful country in the world. So that's the 1950s. Go back to the 1930s, and I don't think you'd see that incredible trust in government in the middle of the Great Depression. 
So it really depends when you start these surveys and when you're counting them from. So I'm much more interested in, in behaviors because I think that if people feel that government is trustworthy, they will engage in actions that demonstrate their interact. It's an interactive relationship and they will it, react to government in a way that shows that they have some confidence in it, that they do find it trustworthy. They will uh, have higher levels of compliance with a whole variety of laws and extractive demands of government. Uh, there will be possibly less protest or less resistance if they find the government is actually delivering. Now, all of those things can be studied contextually, too, so you can figure out the variables. So I can see cases where the federal government, for example, in the civil rights movement, was believed to be relatively trustworthy in comparison to some of the state-level governments. So when President Eisenhower sent in the troops um, the, to ensure that high schools were, in fact, desegregated against Governor Faubus um, in Alabama and elsewhere, that was an indication. I mean, people were willing to protest in part because they believed that government would help them out. Some level of government would help them out, at least to some extent. So you have to, the advantage of behavioral measures is one, you can see actions, and two, you can understand context. You're not just getting a simple yes, no to a survey with no knowledge of the person who's answering or the context in which they're answering or what they think they are answering. The, this uh, this concept of compliance is very interesting to me, and I, I, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on it a little bit more. You've talked a little bit about, you know, in terms of extraction of resources being taxes or, or military service or otherwise. Are there other ways that we can conceptualize it that people might understand on a, on a day-to-day basis in their, in their own communities? Yes. Uh, so one of, one of them is laws, right? Uh, there are all kinds of laws that aren't extractive necessarily, but do regulate us. And the extent to which there is higher or lower uh, voluntary compliance with those laws where it doesn't have to be enforced can be, again, contextually, uh, an indicator of the extent to which government is believed to be trustworthy or even present. Um, so, for example, uh, Seattle was off, was famous, the city where I live was famous for the fact that there was no jaywalking. Now, there were police enforcing jaywalking um, during the middle of the day uh, in some parts of the city, but you saw compliance with uh, the rule of no jaywalking all over the city, and even in the middle of the night, there's a famous story of a uh, someone who was being interviewed for police chief uh, was from the East Coast, woke up far too early in the morning, looked out the window. It was dark out. There was literally nobody on the street, no cars, no people, except for one person who was standing at a light and didn't cross the street until the light changed. And this person thought this may be an apocryphal story, but it's an indicative story, um, said, boy, this will be an easy city to be police chief of. These people follow the rules even when there's no one here. So the comp, the comp, 
the combination of believing that there was some enforcement there, but also believing that these were rules that made sense in terms of um, social order. And so there was some confidence that government was asking for something that was reasonable and appropriate, um, had a real consequence for the way in which the city or people in the city operated. So that's a low cost little example of the kind of thing I'm talking about. So it's, it's a set of behaviors that people engage in because they think it's the right thing to do because they understand that it makes a society work better and government may establish these rules, but they, it establishes rules that, that people find comprehensible, find appropriate, find fair, find, um, make their lives as a society better off. In your work, you've also stated that a certain amount of skepticism or a level of mistrust is important in a, is essential in a democratic government. Can you share why do you think this is important? Well, you know, even in the case I gave you earlier about individual trust can lead to being conned. Um, you never want to trust totally. <laughs> um, you don't want to give your confidence without thought. And this is particularly true in situations where you might be conned, but also with government. I mean, part of what it means to be a democracy is that we hold it accountable, we criticize it, we raise questions about it, we don't trust blindly, uh, we don't get, we don't assess trustworthiness blindly, we, we raise questions about it. And this has become very important, particularly in thinking about uh, all kinds of government rules, laws, and regulations. So some of the examples that come to mind from very recent times are the way in which the police have treated particularly young black men of young black men and the kind of violence that has occurred, not always so young as in George Floyd's case, um, but that we know that there are these kinds of circumstances and we shouldn't feel total confidence in the police, particularly if you're a young person of color in a particular kind, almost anywhere. Um, turns out neighborhood doesn't matter that much. Uh, we, in the abortion case, in the anti-abortion case, I mean, there is lots of reason for people to want to, women to want to resist the new rules of their state governments, um, where they, they should be raising criticism, they should be skeptical of the laws of the government uh, that have been imposed. So I think there are lots of circumstances where, as democratic citizens, it's absolutely critical to keep the debate up until we reach some resolution that people have some relatively consensual feeling is fair and and serves the interest of all and is 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 really making the society better off. Something I keep coming back to that there's a community interest or a larger societal interest at stake and not just a personal belief or opinion. So, you know, we, we, uh, government can have two different meanings here, right? There's the government that's in power right now in terms of the elected official, and then there's the bureaucratic system that's a little more consistent and, and doesn't change quite as much. And so, uh, you know, as trustworthiness of that 
governing government, the, the elected officials may change and go over time. How are there ways that the more bureaucratic government can maintain consistency, or is it important for them to main, remain consistency and, and be trustworthy in and of themselves, or how do those kind of play against one another? Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, I think government—that's government itself, the bureaucratic agents of government. Um, that is where, I mean, there are credibly important rules and institutional arrangements in place to ensure, in, in one hopes, that those uh, agents continue to act in a way, not necessarily consistently with the past. Sometimes we want to change past actions. I mean, we've changed schools, police, a whole bunch of things that we're engaging in practices that we no longer find appropriate, credible, good for parts of the population. But it is important that they are, we have confidence that they are acting according to the standards of the day, the standards of fairness, of justice, of competence, that they're competent, that they're efficient, that we're going to get rid of bad actors who are susceptible to either bad behavior of, you know, or they're really incompetent, or they are really corrupt, um, or, or not even, or even a little corrupt. Um, and we're seeing a breakdown in a lot of that. Um, you know, one of the things that has made me very unhappy in the last couple of decades, really beginning with, uh, I think, the Reagan administration um, in government, is an, but certainly has been a largely Republican, I'm going to be partisan here, has been a largely Republican effort is to weaponize government, that the agencies of government, and to make us distrust them to make us lose confidence in them. So one of the agencies that has always, has for a very long time actually been incredibly trustworthy has been the IRS. We may not like the IRS, that's a different thing, and off that's why, why I don't always like surveys. I mean, you could ask people, do you trust the IRS? No, they're gonna steal money from my pocket. Do you have confidence that they're not corrupt? Do you have confidence that you know, they're playing by the rules. Yes, but they're still going to steal money from my pocket. So, you know, I, I understand that part of the feeling about the IRS, the Internet, Internal Revenue Service. But clearly um, it has been for a very long time uh, a fairly clean, if not totally clean, um, bureaucratic agency that has played by the rules. Uh, the Postal Service is another one. And we're undermining those agencies uh, by, by discrediting them, by not giving them the funds they need to do their jobs properly so they begin to look incompetent because they just don't have enough people to do the work. Um, you know, that's, that's a source of incompetence. It is not the individuals being incompetent. It's the larger government, the elected officials, uh, not providing them, not feeding them um, and so they're or not hiring enough people so that or, you know, raising questions about them in ways that are very problematic for the society. You've mentioned a couple of times that you're skeptic about surveys. Uh, could you share what kind of methods have you relied on or um, points of investigation that have really worked for you in your work? Something that early career researchers or even graduate students can can learn. Well, first of all, I should say I'm not skeptical of all surveys. There are lots of good surveys out there. 
Um, I was skeptical of the early ones and of a set of questions and of non-contextual surveys. So there have been a whole bunch of um, Boo Rothstein and his team in Sweden have done a remarkable job of improving and making us improve the surveys that assess the quality of government by ensuring that there are questions about, do you trust this particular agency to do this particular thing, right? Rather than it being a generalized question. So I think there are good surveys out there. Um, I, I and Audrey Sachs have used the Afrobarometer survey, which provides uh, a lot of contextual information, including geophysical information about where particular hospitals are or where roads are, or other things that tell us something about services. Uh, John Alquist, another co-author, and I have, and Amanda Clayton have all used surveys um, in thinking about questions in our own work. So I don't want to diss surveys totally. I just want to put them in context and make it, I'm, I'm a big believer in multi-methods. So I think that one of the things that graduate students need to do is to use surveys if appropriate, to use experiments if appropriate, but also to do observational work, to actually look at behavior and look at context in which behavior is occurring. So I believe in field work. Um, I believe when it's possible, sometimes it's not. You know, historical work, you can't actually go back into the field, at least not yet. We haven't crossed the time-space barrier yet. Um, maybe we will one day. Um, but you can, you know, you can delve, you can extract from history uh, a lot of material that gives you the kind of content, and I've done that. A um, number of us engage in analytic narratives as a way to use history and game theory as a way to think about historical circumstances and evidence to determine what kinds of pieces of evidence we need to know if a claim is reasonable or not. Um, so multi-methods is really what I advise, and you can't use all methods all the time, but to use the methods that will help you get the closest approximation to a good answer as you can get, hmm. to a compelling answer, and one which you can show that the alternatives um, are less compelling. Hmm. Well, you're, you know, you've set up... Uh, and some of your work, uh, a model for how to look at trustworthiness in, in government that's kind of perf performance-based, but also has an, uh, an alignment with values, understanding there. And, uh, you know, I wonder in a, a current concept where there's so many different media channels dictating what different individuals are hearing and perceptions can be wildly different, depending upon what which of those media channels you're talking about, how that might change how people understand the performance and, and how we even go about trying to determine alignment uh, values in some of these situations? Well, the first thing I need to say is that this is not a totally new problem. Uh, you think about the early 20th century and the sources of information that people had. Uh, you think about you know, the Hearst papers were giving one view of the world and the New York Times was giving another view of the world. I mean, we're continuing with that problem, uh, maybe amplified some by social media, 
But the big change was probably with radio, where you had a million voices, it felt like, coming in from Father Coughlin to, you know, um, the Cronkites of radio. Uh, so voices that were giving out conspiracy theories and voices that were giving out as close to the facts as a human could provide. So, and people were going to churches and to uh, mosques and to synagogues, and they were getting different information there than they might have from some other source. So we've had this problem of multiple sources of information um, and what we choose to think is uh, believable and credible and whatnot forever. So this is, a, this is a human problem, not just a social media problem, which maybe, as I said, social media amplifies, and there's certainly an argument that it does, um, but which, which we've got to untangle back to the human problem of how people come to the beliefs that they come to. So a lot of my more recent work has really been on beliefs and what the sources of beliefs are, because I do think that is a perennial uh, question. And I don't have a great answer to that yet. I mean, clearly it's contextual to some degree. Clearly it's psychological to some or emotional to some degree. But I'm, you know, I'm still struggling to figure out uh, how that happens. The book In the Interest of Others that I did with John Alquist was really tried to tackle that problem in part by looking at the organizational context in which and the governance arrangements of certain unions and how they vary and how that then led people to uh, hear and credit certain kinds of information to act on it or not act on it, uh, to believe certain kinds of things about the world as opposed to other things about the world. So I keep looking for, my method is always to find cases which are proof of the possible. Um, if you, can we find a case where people come to believe something that makes, isn't a conspiracy theory, does make sense, um, even though they come from heterogeneous backgrounds and might be susceptible to all kinds of different views. Uh, so how do we understand why a set of people come to this set of beliefs? And by looking at that proof of the possible and thinking about that particular instance, can we then generalize, scale it, think about other kinds of cases which are quite different? Well, this podcast is kind of oriented towards the practitioners who are striving to create some sort of social change. Um, how might you suggest that these practitioners understand political trustworthiness and how it can be important for their work? Well, I think it's absolutely important, absolutely essential that policymakers, bureaucrats, um, legislators, courts, justices understand the importance of creating trustworthiness. Um, without that kind of credibility about their decisions, um, they create havoc and political resistance and behavioral resistance that might not be necessary, um, and they undermine democracy. So I think it's incredibly important to understand that in the making of decisions about who to help, um, what kind of rules to make, what, how to interpret the laws, 
that you think about, one, how the message is going to be heard and by whom, how it's going to be implemented and in what ways. Is there a possibility that it could be unfairly used? Is there, are there misuses? And how do you mitigate against those? Um, do you ensure that there is some kind of capacity to create competence in implementing the rules of the game, the new rules of the game, the old rules of the game. So I think all of those things have are very practical decisions and considerations. But at the base of it is creating some kind of trustworthy government, which doesn't mean that there's never resistance and never questions. Of course, there will be. We're a plural society. We have very different views. Um, but then having a process by which those views can be seriously considered or seriously put to rest. Well, you know, one of your recent publications, you talked, you expressed based on COVID and other factors that there, uh, you had some skepticism, it seemed, about the ability of top-down universal policies to be effective in, in our plural society now. Do you... Uh, do you have recommendations for how to better contextualize and you know, uh, how local or state governments can perhaps take leads in helping contextualize some of these conversations? Well, I think there, we have to make a distinction here between the kinds of things that we think everybody needs to do, um, like vaccines, for example, or various kinds of health practices, and the kinds of things where there can be differences in different ways in which uh, the practices are carried out. So, for example, let me make that more concrete. I mean, vaccines. I think you know we need uh, we need to make that everybody's got to when there's an epidemic that a vaccine will protect the vulnerable. Everybody's got to get vaccinated. But how we implement that vaccination may vary from community to community, and who carries that message and who provides the vaccine may have to vary, as we've seen in, in the kinds of examples that I gave in that article in Daedalus. Um, in other kinds of instances, um, I think there... Well, I think it's always the case, I guess. Now I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I'm thinking about cases like the experiments that federalism allows. So there are like transportation systems, public transportation systems. I think there can be lots of experiments with public transportation systems. Where does light rail work best? Where do buses work best? Where do electric cars work best in some kind of public facility? I mean, when we create a new technology, a new way of doing things, we often want to experiment to see what will be the best method to do it. There are all kinds of experiments going on with policing right now as a way to improve policing. So the bottom line is we need policing. The bottom line is we need public transportation. The bottom line is we need vaccines, but there can be experiments in doing that. There are other kinds of rules, however, which probably are universalistic and we don't experiment with. Um, you know, we cannot uh, engage in genocide. We cannot 
engage in forms of overt discrimination. And we shouldn't even engage in covert discrimination, but you know, the, we begin to be in a line, a long chain there of clearly you don't segregate, clearly you don't uh, keep people because of some characteristic, be it color, race, religion, whatever, out of schools or out of, uh, you know, dis disadvantage them in terms of services. You cannot do that. That needs to be universal. You don't experiment with that. But you go down the line and we are having problems figuring out whether certain kinds of behaviors are discriminatory or not, right? There's the big argument about uh, what's going on with college admissions right now. What is exactly discriminatory behavior at that level? In order to help one group, are you discriminating against another group? So there are going to be trade-offs down the line that we're going to have to take into consideration, but we need to make some principles at the top about certain kinds of behaviors that are never allowed. And that's got to be clearly based on principle and not just on public opinion. Well, a little while ago, you were talking about um, weaponized distrust being used as a tool by Republicans in terms of you know getting people to criticize the government. Uh, in current times or in the current context, do you see other weapons of uh, mistrust being used by different other agencies that one should be, or let's say practitioners should be wary of? Well, I, I, I mean, it's not just the right that's been doing it, though they've been doing it uh, more, much more, much, much more, and it's been an ideological commitment. But I do think that uh, there are all kinds of circumstances Again, I'll come back to Seattle. Um, we, uh, as, a, as a city, elected a city council that was disproportionately left-wing, progressive in many ways, and I found personally somewhat problematic in other ways. Uh, one of our city council people led a protest about the police wanting to in an effort to defund the police to the mayor's home, which and into the, and unlocked the city council uh, building and let protesters in. Both of those things I found incredibly problematic, and they were an effort to show how distrusting of the government she was, this particular city council person and the protesters should be. That was also weaponizing distrust, weaponizing distrust of the police beyond what I thought, I personally thought was appropriate, but certainly weaponizing distrust of mayor and the city councils in ways that, you know, looked awful lot like some of the things that the right has done in the past. So I think when that happens, um, you know, some of the protests I think have, that have come from progressive urges have also had that consequence. So that's very worrying to me. The thing that worries me more than anything, however, I think right now, and is a weaponizing of distrust, is distrust of teachers and what they're choosing to teach in the classroom and of libraries and of what they are choosing, what books to keep on the shelves. So this campaign about um, 
having uh, only certain books be read by certain children is, uh, I think, very problematic in a free society, very problematic. Much more worrying to me than efforts to undermine the IRS, which I don't like, but which, uh, or undermine the police, which I think can go too far. But we are now challenging a basic premise uh, or members of our society are challenging a basic premise of a free society. And if we're not allowed to learn things, to develop our own critical capacities, if parents can say, my children can't learn this, I think that's very troubling. Again, unless it's according to certain, there's certain basic principles, we do not want people to learn <clears throat> that there's anybody who's inferior, right? or that uh, they are entitled to uh, racially based or religiously based discrimination. Hmm. Well, I do, you mentioned earlier you'd written a book uh, with a couple of co-authors, Cooperation Without Trust, question mark, as you, as you rightly pointed out there. Uh, you know, the, this is that we're doing a two-part, uh, two separate arcs for this first season of the podcast, one on trust, and one on power, power potentially being an alternative way to look at how to bring about cooperation. So I'm just, I'm, I wondered if you can share a little bit about the interplay of these different pieces, these these trust and power pieces, and how people go about uh, use, perhaps using the frame you set up earlier of extracting resources in, in a society. Well, power is clearly something all political scientists are concerned about, and I'm very concerned about issues of power and have studied them. Um, so, and power is an interesting concept because political scientists, despite all of the work that we have done, still don't have a very crisp and clear concept of power or way to study it. So I was involved as an undergraduate. Um, I was a student of Peter Backrack and Morton Barrett's who wrote the second dimension of power, uh, really the conditions under which people are given rights but can't use those rights uh, because there's a whole background of, of power that's being used against them to actually, even though it's not explicit, coercive, uh, punitive, state-driven power, it's ways in which people are excluding others or um, ensuring that they don't uh, have full expression of their rights. Um, so power is a concept which we're still trying to, to sort out as a way to study directly. Uh, the three dimensions of power that I was part of sort of came to a halt sometime in the 1980s because uh, you could study one kind of power but not the other two kinds of power, uh, the kind of ways in which power infects our mindset and our beliefs. That's part of why I've come back to beliefs, to think about power. So how are trustworthiness and power related to each other? Um, they are related. Um, I think that the kind of capacity to get things done, which is one way of thinking about power, a way to get people to do things that doesn't require direct coercion and in fact involves the kind of voluntary uh, agreement 
and acquiescence to act or compliance to act that we would want in a democracy. We'd want more of that and less of the direct coercion. That kind of power really rests on uh, building a trustworthy set of institutional arrangements that people feel comfortable with. And that then enhances, I think, uh, the power of those who are at the top of those structures, as well as the power of the people who are underneath them, because it, it creates this interaction and relationship. Trustworthy, trust is a relationship, um, and trustworthiness is built on relationships. So if one party to it finds that it's untrustworthy or that the government is untrustworthy, it undermines the power of the government as well. And they can do that. They can act to do that. That's a very interesting take. We um, had the opportunity to also talk to Dr. Lukes a couple of weeks back. So ah, it, yes. it's kind of, everything is kind of coming together. So, Well, Stephen is... Uh, I'm a big fan of Stephen's work on this in this area, and I've known him for a very long time. <laughs> he was a very good friend of Peter Backrack's, and they he introduced Peter introduced me to Stephen. So long ago, I can barely remember it. <laughs> very good. Well, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but I'll just ask a final kind of question here. Um, are there resources you would recommend? Obviously, we'll link in the description to this episode some links to some of your work from the past, but are there other resources that you would recommend folks look into, practitioners, if they want to understand more about trust impacting uh, in their political work or in their in their work to create social change? Um, yeah, there's a very good new book, which isn't explicitly about trust, though trust is implicated in it and trustworthiness is implicated in it, by Jen Palka called Recoding America, which I, Ezra Klein said every policymaker has to read, and I agree with him. It's a remarkable book about uh, the problems with bureaucratic agencies and, uh, and to some extent electoral officials. Uh, but it really has to do with the ways in which our rules and regulations are not always implemented the way we hope they will be. And it leads to um, a lack of competence, a lack of confidence, a lack of, of trust in those institutions. I think it's a must read for policymakers. Well, the other book I do recommend is Daniel Allen's new book, uh, Justice by Means of Democracy. Uh, which also uh, raises really important issues for policymakers. Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, Yugasha, what, what do you think about what we've just learned? Well, it was very interesting, to say the least. Um, really enjoyed the conversation, really enjoyed learning uh, about her thoughts on political trustworthiness and um, some of the deeper questions that we that we delved into today about importance of trust in a democratic setting. Yeah, it's you know I think we're learning more and more that in this democratic setting in this society that we we aspire to trust is absolutely essential in that and it's you know it it has a role between all these different places but there's also an element of necessary distrust which she pointed mm -hmm. out which I think is so 
uh, important and easily overlooked. We kind of assume that we want everybody to trust us, but even, uh, uh, you know, I, there's an interesting question, I guess, for me personally, like, do I want my wife to trust me entirely or do I want her to also, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's healthy for her to trust anyone, for anyone to trust anyone else entirely here. Yeah, I absolutely appreciated the the way she described distrust. Um, and in today's world where we are seeing more and more, I think, right wing members coming into power in so many different countries, um, I fear that we may forget the relevance of distrust in maintaining democratic uh, societies. Um, and yeah, th there's a lot to lot to think on uh, over this. What will you be taking away from today's conversation? Anything that surprised you or didn't surprise you at all? Um, I don't I don't know if I'm surprised so much. I mean, I'm intrigued about the idea of uh, her behavioral focus, which is, I think, mm -hmm. quite different from our previous conversations, yeah. which have focused more on, on trust as a belief. You know, I think if I'm uh, interpreting her work rightly, I think she too uh, interprets trust as a belief, but that it's a belief that has to manifest uh, in, in the real world. And so but that behavioral understanding of trust, I think, is very interesting. And, and thinking about how it manifests in our own work in terms of community collaborations and, and social change collaborations, how that is a behavioral indication of trust is, uh, that maybe different from from what people dictate in terms of their belief structures. How about yourself, you know, you guys? What anything surprise you or any big takeaways? I I think uh, thinking from the point of view of practitioners, the chief takeaway has to be about the power of observation in ascertaining trust. Um, that cannot be underestimated observation along with going out in the field, like she said, and using some historical records to uh, build trust or to at least form an understanding of the community's point of view is is really important. Yeah, it's, you know, I think there's a, a unspoken part of all of this that we should really be caring about and, and, and engaging with other people authentically, which is not always the easiest thing to do, but does seem to be one of the backbones of making trust work in some ways. But, you know, I, and I'll go back to, you know, she started us with this place where her work comes from with this idea of mobilization of resources mm -hmm. being crucial to this and why is it that? And so I think about, you know, from our social change practice, you know, really what to engage in a social change practice, we have to uh, engage the support of the people that we're working with, whether that's monetary support, whether that's getting out in the streets, whether that is simply showing up at neighborhood meetings, whatever that is, that that's a display and willingness to share resources from the people that we are working with. And I think that the, that's probably the chief takeaway from me is that if you don't demonstrate trustworthiness and attempt to build trust, that you're not going to be able to generate those resources at the end of the day, people are not going to comply with you. You know, she uses that framework of compliance, but I think I like this idea of of uh, willingness to give resources over time. That if if that's the goal, and I think it has to be for anyone that's engaged in social change, uh, then you really have to have to be trustworthy, demonstrate that trustworthiness over and over and over again. Yeah, and. The way she mentioned trustworthiness with a healthy amount of skepticism were, 
I think that was the biggest takeaway from me. Um, and I don't think we understand that as well as we should. Um, going back on something that you said earlier, Brad, if you look back on your research career so far, uh, can you think of instances where this understanding of political trustworthiness could have helped you in any way? Oh, gosh. Uh, yes. I mean, in- entirely so, always. Um, because I think, you know, the even when we have trust that's fragile and we often don't understand where it comes from entirely. You know, we, uh, I think there's been a common refrain throughout this and we've even joked about it ourselves that, you know, we all think we're all, we're trustworthy. And right. so like this idea of engaging with others and looking at it from their perspective, looking at what might dictate trustworthiness from their perspective, how to build that confidence in them and, and uh, uh, that you have, uh, that you should be deemed trustworthy is uh, something that I think we can all look at. But how about yourself? Is there something in here that you take away that you think you could have utilized in the past? Well, certainly, um, especially when we think about context, and we've talked about this a lot in our previous conversations as well, um, that it matters a lot. And if we see the way that people respond to, let's say, a government project, it could be a flyover, it could be a highway, it could be um, any number of things, I don't know, affordable housing projects, and the way that different sections of society respond to that, and the amount of work that the institutions need to put in for, um, in terms of communicating the idea behind that project needs to be dealt differently when you're talking about people who are going to be, um, I guess, beneficiaries of that affordable housing or or maybe, I don't know, collaborating with you in that project. So I, I think the amount of trust that you would want different sections of community to have uh, in the institutions has to be dealt a lot more delicately than, than it is. So I think that understanding would have definitely helped me in... Um, in some of the conversations that I had with the government officials uh, when I was working back in India and in understanding their views and how seeing that the how that could have changed the relationship that they had with the people. So for sure, a um, lot of um, great takeaways from this. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it was an honor and a privilege to have her join yeah. us and just take us to that next level. And, you know, next time we're going to be kind of wrapping up our trust conversation here and talking about some potential future gener- uh, directions for trust research and mm-hmm. and stuff. But uh, thank you as always for uh, coming on this journey with me, Yugasha. This was great. Thanks, Matt.